All right, Luke. We're going to try to look through. We'll see if we can make it. I'd like to do Luke and Acts uh, together over the next, we'll see how long uh, it takes us to do that. We did all of Genesis in 10 months, and that was 50 chapters. So I felt I feel good. Luke is 24, Acts is 28, so maybe 10 or 12 months we can get through both of these books. They're both written by the same guy, Luke. He's a doctor, and he's also a historian. He's not an eyewitness to what we'll read in Luke. He was not one of Jesus' band of followers. He was a traveling companion of Paul. And so when we get to Acts, towards the end, the second half of Acts, a good bit of that is first person for him. But in Luke, it's not first person. He's much more like us. He's someone who heard the gospel from someone else. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus, who's a Gentile convert to Christianity. And he's giving him uh, some reasons for his faith. He's saying there's a strong foundation here uh, for what you're believing. And so both Luke and Acts, we see Luke stepping back. He writes with a lot of precision and attention to detail because what he's trying to do is speak to this guy who's a Gentile convert and say there's a solid basis for your belief. It's not a bunch of superstition or folklore or legend. There's historical foundation here, and that's what Luke Uh, is trying to provide. So we'll start chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. We just talked about that. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. I'll pause here just to make sure this is not where we live. Um, So give you a little context. There were 24 divisions of priests. Each division worked twice a year, one week at a time. And so... Zechariah was a priest. He was married to Elizabeth, who also came. She was also kind of in the priestly clan, but women were not allowed to work in the temple. And so it's Zechariah's group. It's their week. And his job is uh, to keep incense on the altar. The altar is in the holy place, and the incense is supposed to be burning continually. So in the morning and the night, one of the priests would make sure that the incense was fresh. It was a huge honor to get to do that, you see it was chosen by Lot. We may say it was random, or you can say that's God choosing. We don't know exactly what Lot's is, but it was a process that allowed God to have some say-so in the matter. So some priests would never get the chance to burn incense because they would never be chosen through this process. So it's a big deal for Zechariah to have the opportunity to do that. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. That's a normal response when someone sees an angel. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. 
He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So you got that. John the Baptist's birth foretold parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the sixth month, so six months later of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, same angel, to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Before we jump in, let me just say one thing over here, kind of doctrinally. Um, Why is the virgin birth important? Three times we see there this word virgin, Mary's a virgin. Why is that a big deal? Is that something that we can give on? We know that doesn't, it's not how babies are born. So why is that something that we need to hang our hat on? Very important for us to hang on to this idea of the virgin birth. And again, you see Luke wants to make sure three times in ten verses. I want you to make sure that you know that this woman um, is a virgin. Why? Because if Jesus is conceived the way everybody else who's ever lived has been conceived biologically, then he inherits sin nature. If he inherits our sin nature, then his sacrifice he, he can't be a perfect sacrifice. Why? Because he has a sin nature, just like we do. His sacrifice for us is then ineffective, and we're still dead in our sins. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to read it. You can read it in Romans 5 if you want to look in those two places. There's a big emphasis on the fact that sin is transmitted to us. Our sin nature is transmitted to us, you can almost say biologically, through conception. And because Jesus is outside of the normal process of conception... He doesn't inherit our sin nature. The issue for us is not just that we commit sins with a lowercase s. It's that we're sinners, and that's from conception. And Jesus, because he's born of a virgin, doesn't inherit that same fallen nature 
from Adam. And so, therefore, he's eligible to be a perfect sacrifice for us. So that's just a little bit over here on why it's important to hold on to this idea of Jesus being born of a virgin. A couple of things for us, three things I want to point out. One, you see a framework. If you look at the announcement with John and with Jesus, there are a lot of similarities. And for both of those guys, their parents, Zachariah and Mary, are given a framework for their life. Here's the name. You're going to call him John. John means God has shown favor to us, and we see that's what happens. John has this responsibility to call people back to God. We see also uh, for Jesus. His name's going to be Jesus. The Lord saves. That's who he is. We see for both of them there's a sense of their calling. John's responsibility, turn people back to God, prepare a way for the Lord. Jesus' responsibility is going to be a king, and he's going to rule forever and ever. You see in both of those birth announcements, I'm just going to call it a framework. You can call it something else. They're anchors that keep them grounded. They're boundary lines, if you like that phrase better, from Psalm 16, that God's kind of laid the boundary lines for John and Jesus' life. And we know, we've talked about this before, boundary lines or fences provide freedom for us. If we know where the boundary lines are, then as long as we're within them, we can run with freedom. We don't have to worry about whether we've... um, Stepped outside of those. If you've ever played a sport before, it's much easier to play on a lined field because you know what you know where out of bounds is. If you're just playing and the field's not lined, you always wonder, is it in, is it out? And so if you want to see that in this way, this word spoken about their names, this idea about their calling, those things provide framework for their life. And the thing I want to encourage you to think about, I'm not really necessarily a New Year's resolution guy, but first Sunday of the year, I do want you thinking about framework. And do you have any sense of framework for your own life? I'm not necessarily saying for years and years and years. That might be too much to bite off right now. But for now, for this year even, for the next three to six months, do you have some sense of a framework? Do you have any sense of where the boundary lines are for you in these places? Four things I want you to think about. One, do you know what God's trying to do in you personally in terms of your character? Romans 8.29, he's predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Predestined from the beginning of time, this is what God has said he's going to do. He's going to make us each look as much like Jesus as possible before we die. Do you know what particular element of your character he's working on right now? If you can answer that, that's, that's a framework that gives you something, right? This is where God's at work. So then the question is, what does it look like for me to cooperate with him? If I don't have any idea where he's at work, it becomes much more difficult to cooperate with him. It also becomes much more difficult to interpret my circumstances. If I know where God's at work in my terms of character, then I can look at my circumstances through that lens. Oh, this makes sense. This is what God's trying to teach me now. And so it makes sense that these things are playing out in my life in this particular way. Second thing, do you know what the good work that God has for you right now? Ephesians 2.10, God's created good works in advance. There's that idea of before you were born. He's created good works for you to do. Those good works are how he wants to use you to advance his kingdom, to advance his purposes in the world. Do you have any idea what one of those things is for you right now? What's the thing that's right in front of you that God is saying, hey, this is what I want? It could be to lead a small group, go on a short-term mission trip, write a letter to your dad. I don't know. What's the thing, the good work that he's put in front of you right now to say, this is what I want you doing. This is where I want you giving yourself as a way of expanding the kingdom, expanding my rule and my reign in the community that you're a part of. Can you, those things to me, that's framework. 
without that type of a framework, I don't know how you can be or I can be faithful and fruitful over time. Life, to me, at that point becomes very random, very scattered, if I don't have any sense of where the boundary lines are. Think about John when he turns 21. And all of his friends are like, you're 21, let's go. What does John say? I can't. This angel, Gabriel, showed up to my dad before I was born and said I could never drink. It's just part of the thing for me. And so John knows. What about Jesus? His dad's a carpenter. It's expected that he will be the same. At some point it's time to you choose that college prep trade school path or whatever. And he's going, do I need to go to trade school and become a carpenter? No. My thing is to be a king. I need to move in this other direction. We'll see in a couple of chapters. Jesus spends a ton of time at the temple. He's learning about this world over here that he's going to be a part of. Much more so than he's learning about how to be a carpenter. He knew that. That's not where he gave himself. Those things provided framework for John and Jesus as they grew up. And I think it's important for us to have some sense of that same type of framework. Or I don't, again, I don't get how we can be faithful to what God is doing in us or fruitful in terms of how we're living over time. Life to me at that point becomes much more you're just taking what comes and you're reacting versus being intentional and proactive in the choices that you're making. So maybe another question for you, and this is much more personal and individualistic. Is there anything that you need to be doing special in recognition of or preparation for what you sense God is saying to you? Again, that's John. John, you don't get to drink. That's the thing. No alcohol for you. That's a special stipulation for John. We We see that of several people in the Bible, but by no means is that a universal command that's given to parents when their children are born. Your child will never be able to drink alcohol. It's something special that's tied to John's framework. Is there anything for you based on what God's doing in your life, based on what he's calling to you that you need to implement? Maybe you need to fast. Maybe that's something for you. That's something for a season of time. You need to do that. Maybe that's something to do with your devotional life in terms of journaling or what you need to be reading. Maybe if you feel like God's saying, hey, it's a short-term mission trip. Maybe you need to pick up a little Spanish between now and then. Or I don't know. But is there anything in specifically that you need to be doing in recognition or preparation for this sense of what God is doing in your life. And the last thing, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to hit it too much, is are you cultivating dependence upon the Spirit? Are you actively engaging the Holy Spirit in His work in your life? You see that with John. Here's this special stipulation. You're not going to drink, and then here's what I'm, going to, here's what I'm giving you instead the Holy Spirit, even from your conception. And we talked last week about how important it is for us to live empowered by the Spirit, not just in things that are obviously supernatural, but in the everyday elements of what it means to be faithful. Again, I've mentioned me. God says to me as a husband, love your wife as I love you. I can't do that on my own. He says to me as a dad, don't exasperate your kids. That's to me, is one of the joys of being a parent. And so I've got to figure out how do I not do that? Only through the grace of God. So I've got to say, Holy Spirit, you've got to empower me to not exasperate my children. You've got to empower me to love Misty the way you love me. You've got to empower me to always be ready to give an answer. Those types of things, the regular dailiness of life, we need the Holy Spirit's activity, um, his empowerment to be able to accomplish those things. So that's a framework, and I just want you thinking about that. It may be, depending on your family situation, that's something you want to think about as a family, that y'all want to say, what's God doing in us? 
What's he putting in front of us? One of the best decisions we made, we didn't play any sports in the fall for any of our kids. And for us, that was a big deal. And we felt like for what God was doing in our family, that was the special thing that we, that was the special deal. We felt like the word for us was kind of, we needed to simplify and focus in on one or two things. And then the special don't drink alcohol for us was don't play any sports. And that was just for the fall. We'll play them in the spring, but we didn't in the fall. So that type of thing may be something for you, depending on your family situation, to think about. I would absolutely encourage you to think about it personally and individually, but it may be something for you to think about family-wise. Now let me jump in real quick. I want to look at both. I want to look at Zachariah and Mary, and I want to talk about some similarities and some differences that I see in them. First thing I want to talk about is timing. We see God's timing here, and to me, it's, it's inconvenient for everybody involved. We see with Zechariah, you could say God is slow. I'm going to put that in, question mark, in quotation marks. He's late. Zechariah is old. Elizabeth is old. They're past childbearing years. And then this angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. Now, it is in response to their prayer. But they're still past the point when they would normally expect to have children. And there are implications for God's slowness, again, if I can use that word, in their life. We see Elizabeth, it says, God removed my disgrace. During this time, if you were married and you were not pregnant, it was considered either at a minimum, it was unfortunate. It could be a disgrace. It could even be seen as divine judgment. On you, that God is punishing you. It was always the woman who was considered to be the one who was responsible for lack of children. She was considered to be barren. And so for Elizabeth, she carried that around for decades. We see Luke at the beginning wants to make sure that we know that the reason they haven't had kids is because of, it's not due to anything in them. He says they're righteous and they're blameless. God is not punishing them, He's not judging them. But nobody else knows that. All they know is. Zachariah and Elizabeth can't have kids. And so either that means, again, it's just, oh, poor them, pity them, it's a disgrace for her, or it could mean that God is judging them for something in their life. And she walks around with that for decades. We know, we're pretty confident, we don't know that they died at some point, probably pretty early on in John's life. And he was raised in the desert by who knows who. There are implications for God's, again, slowness, or lateness, both for Elizabeth and Zechariah and for John. And yet we see God coming at this very particular time to say, now's the time, in the time of Herod. It's 6 or 7 B.C. It's not zero. The guy that did that did the math wrong. It's 6 or 7 B.C. We know there's been about 400 years since the end of Malachi. 400 years, sometimes people call those the silent years, when God's not necessarily doing anything, nothing that we see recorded in the Bible. We have this gap of time, and we go, God, what are you doing? We see the same thing between Genesis and Exodus. If you remember when we looked at that, 400 years between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1, God, what are you doing? During that time, he was forming a people. He was going from 70 men to 600,000 men, from 200 people to 2 million people. He was forming a nation. He said, that's what I'm doing. I'm making a people. I'm making a nation. It takes time to have this many babies. And so there's 400 years where he's forming a nation. What we see here. During those 400 silent years as he's preparing a people. There's one language at this point, Greek. Everybody can speak the same language. So if I've got a message and I'm God and I want to make sure the entire known world knows that it makes sense to do that when there's one language. Rome, the Roman uh, Empire is, is pretty almost at its height at this point, at its peak. 
And so there's safety. It's freedom for people to travel because they're not moving from one uh, rulership to another. So again, if I have this word, this gospel that I want proclaimed, it makes sense to do it when travel is easy. Jews are spread. It's called the diaspora. Jews are spread all over the known world. So if, if the Jews are the people who are going to receive the Messiah initially, it makes sense that I would send him at a time when I've got my people placed in all over the world. And so God was doing things. It's nothing that we have recorded in the Bible, but he was preparing the world for the coming of his Messiah. And so my question for you, if you feel like in your own life God has been late, God is slow, is there any sense where you can see formation or preparation? Sometimes, honestly, it's difficult to see those things except retrospectively. But is there any way that you can see those things? Can you give him more time? God, I trust that although I don't see any activity, you're at work. You're doing something. You were doing something between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. You were doing something between Malachi 3 and Matthew 1. And right now I'm living in that gap. And I'm not totally sure what you're doing. But I know you never sleep and you never slumber. And I know you haven't forgotten about me. And so I'm trusting that you're doing some preparatory, some forming work for whatever is next. With Mary, she's at the other end of the continuum. Things are too fast, too early. She's 12 or 13 years old. She's not even married. And an angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. She's... I'm not, and she's, I'm not, how does that work? I'm not even married yet. There are implications for God's, if we can say, speed with her, how quickly, how early he is bringing this announcement to her. The implications for her, she could have gotten stoned. We see in Matthew, Joseph had a mind to put her aside, to divorce her quietly. Why? Because if she's pregnant and he's not the father, then she committed adultery. And the penalty for that, at least theoretically, was stoning. He was being gracious and choosing to divorce her quietly. There are implications for her. Even with Joseph choosing to stay in obedience to the angel, again, there's probably some rumors going floating around about them, some snickerings that Joseph is a righteous man and his reputation was probably ruined because Mary's pregnant at that point. I don't think anybody believes the God-got-me-pregnant defense at that point for them. So you've got implications for Mary and Joseph for God's timing, just like there were implications for Zechariah and Elizabeth for God's timing. But in both cases, it's God's timing. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says this. In the fullness of time, I think is what it says. Let me see. When the set time had fully come, your Bible may say in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why? So we might receive adoption to sonship. So what you see there is God said when it was right. There's two words for time in the Bible. You probably know this. There's one that's chronos that has to do with watch time. And the other's kairos that has to do with the right time. And God doesn't work on chronos time. And that's all we know. All we know is calendar and watch. And what he sees is circumstances. Is it right? Is it fitting? Is it suitable? Is it appropriate? Is everything lined up? And you felt that. In your own life, maybe at some point, those of you who are married, you knew it's the right time to propose. Probably had nothing to do with the calendar and everything to do with your relationship. Some of you maybe have talked to your boss before and it's like, it's just not the right time to ask for a promotion or to ask for a raise. And then there is a right time. And again, you're not necessarily mean the time on the 
clock. You mean the circumstances around that. So we have a little familiarity with that Kairos time, but that's all God deals with. He's not looking at calendars, and that's what we're enslaved to. And so it can create this tension in us. With God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so we're, we're standing here, and we're tapping our foot, and we're, how long, God? How long? Read Psalms, that phrase. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to wait? And for Mary's, it's like, God, why didn't you wait? His timing rarely is convenient for us, but it's always appropriate for what he's doing. I don't necessarily have anything to say to you about that other than just say, are you in one of those places? Are you Mary and something's come on fast and you're not ready? My encouragement to you is to recognize the voice of the Lord and say, you know what, I'm not ready for this, whatever it is. But he's good and his timing is right. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes. I'm going to do what Mary did. What, whatever you say, may it be fulfilled. I'm going to grab on even though I don't feel ready. Are you Zachariah and you're languishing, waiting on an answer? Can you, again, God, I'm trusting that you're at work, even though I can't see you. Last thing, and then we're going to close. It's interesting to me. There's so many things that are similar about Zachariah and Mary, and there's some things that are very different. Both of them had some sense God favored them in some way. They both were righteous On some level, they both have the same angel appear and give them a birth announcement. The news for both of them would turn their lives upside down. And they both respond with a question. And that's where things begin to diverge because their question comes from two different hearts. Zechariah says, what? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. He asks that from a place of doubt. We see that. The angel says, well, here's the sign. You want to know how you're going to be sure? You're not going to get to talk for the next nine months. That's your sign. And the reason I'm doing that is because you didn't believe. Mary asked a very similar question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? But hers comes from a place of acceptance and trust. It's, her question really honestly is functional. I know how babies are formed and I'm not in a position to do that. So how are you proposing that this happens? Hers isn't coming from a place of doubt but from a place of trust. Zacharias is coming from a place of doubt. I was thinking about that and what are the differences between them between Zachariah and Mary, this is a bit speculative, so you may disagree with me. The two things that I see primarily different, other than their genders, which I don't think necessarily matters, one is their age. Zachariah's old and Mary's really young. Zachariah, who knows how old he is, 40, 50, maybe 60 years old. Mary's 12 or 13. I'm wondering for Zachariah, he's set in his ways. It's a stereotype. I want you thinking now outside of age and more like just your life. I don't want you thinking chronologically. Set in his ways been asking for a baby for a long time, didn't have one, and he and Elizabeth had their routine. They knew what life was like. This is what I do two weeks out of the year. I'm gone. I'm at the temple 24-7. The rest of the time I'm home. We're working the yard. We've got our little thing going. There's this void in our life because we don't have a child. We're praying for that. But we kind of moved on in some ways. And we've created this life, just you and me. Then an angel shows up and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. And that's a lot of chairs for Zachariah to move around. He's had decades without one. And now suddenly a kid shows up. Mary's not that way at all. She's 12. She's 13 years old. Everything's new to her. She's engaged. She's about to have a major life shift anyway when she moves from her dad's house to Joseph's house. A lot less baggage for her. A lot fewer chairs for her 
to rearrange. And I wonder for us, again, don't think chronologically, but think about your attitude. Have you gotten set in kind of a, in a routine? Are you kind of like Zachariah? Well, I, I may not have everything that I want, but I know what I've got, and we're just kind of chugging along through life. We're just, whatever that is. For some of us, that may be when you get married, it may be when you have kids, it may be when you re- reach a certain place in your job, but you have just set up routine. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with routine, Unless that routine is so rigid that there's no room for revelation. And Zechariah didn't necessarily have room for revelation, even though it was an answer to his own prayer. He wasn't ready for it. because he, I think because he was set in his ways. And that can happen to us. Again, regardless of our age, we can get so set in the way that we do things that there's no room for revelation. And when God says, hey, I'm answering your prayer where I'm doing this new thing, and we go, mm, that's going to be pretty inconvenient for me. right Now, the other thing I think we see with Zechariah is I think because he had prayed for a kid for a long time, it was very sensitive for him. Who knows how many times he and Elizabeth thought she was pregnant and she wasn't. Who knows if they have well-meaning friends who said, we're praying for you and believe this is the year. And they a year had passed and they weren't pregnant. I'm betting or wondering if he hears this word from the angel, and from the angel, he's thinking, how am I going to tell her? Because what if it doesn't happen? I can't do that to her. I don't want to see her devastated again. So you've got you've to confirm this for me before I'm willing to tell Elizabeth. I'm wondering for some of us, it could be there's no room for revelation in our life because of disappointment. Or pain from the past. And we've cut some certain areas off. We've closed certain things down. And there's no room for God to speak in those areas. Because it just hurts too much. So I don't know if you feel more like Zachariah or more like Mary. It's not can you ask a question. Of course you can. It's not can you ask for a sign. People ask for signs all the time in the Bible. And God doesn't rebuke them. But he knows our heart. Am I asking from a place of doubt? Am I asking from a place of trust? If I'm like Zechariah, I'm asking from a place of doubt. And I'm saying, you've got to, I, I don't trust that what you're telling me is going to happen. Or I don't trust that it's good. And that could be because I'm so set in my ways, I can't receive anything new. It could be because I'm so jaded because of my past, I can't hear this good news that God wants to bring. I don't know if that's where you are this morning. But if it is, my encouragement is try to lean a little bit back towards Mary. Try to lean a little bit back and say, you know what? I do have a routine and I am set, but there's space. And so God, I'm open. There's room for something new. There's room for you to redirect where I'm going. That have been hurt or jaded in the past. But I'm willing to say if that's an area that you want to work in, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. Let's pray. So a couple of things. First, God, I want to pray for each of us that we would all have a sense of framework for our life, at least for these, I want to say for the first three to six months of this year. I'm not looking to say you've got to have a, a blueprint for every day, but some general sense 
this is where God's at work in my heart, and this is where he's at work in my life. This is what my response looks like to him. So I want to pray for everybody individually, and I want to pray for any families that it applies to, that today there'd be revelation around those things, that we would seek you, asking for you to speak to us. We would all have some sense of what it looks like to live within the boundary lines that you've laid for us for these first few months of 2015. We're going to shift. I want you to decide. If you had to say, I'm more like Zechariah or I'm more like Mary, where would you put yourself? Several different ways. You may say, I'm like Zechariah in that I've been waiting a long time. You may say I'm like Zechariah in that I'm kind of set in my ways. I'm like Zechariah in that I've got some disappointment or pain from my past that's keeping there are areas where I won't let God speak. Are you like Mary? Things are coming too fast for you. You're not ready for what you feel like God is calling you to. You're like Mary. You may say, I'm, I'm open, I'm, I'm willing, I'm looking, even for new revelation. I don't know where you would put yourself. If you can grab onto one of those descriptions, I just want to pray for you. God, I want to pray that you would speak to each man and woman in this room and whatever they're identifying with from this story. So much of the application of this is personal an individual, and so I want to make sure that I've given space for you, Holy Spirit, to speak. I want to pray for those who've been waiting. God, would you just would you confirm that you're at work, even if they can't see? Would you encourage them to persevere, God? For those who would say it's I'm not ready, it's too fast. Would you confirm that you're with them? that you've got it. God, for those who are set in their ways, they can't hear anything new. You bring conviction there. Will we hold our routines loosely? And for those who are hurting, they can't hear what you're saying, God. I pray for healing in their hearts, for a willingness to trust you again. I don't know what you've got in store for us individually or collectively this year, but God, we know you're always at work. You're always executing your plan to expand your your kingdom in this community and around the world. And God, we want to be used by you. We know you're always at work conforming us more and more to the image of your son. And we want to say yes. We want to look as much like Jesus as possible before we die. And so, God, on this first Sunday of the year, we open our hearts to you. And we pray that you would come and that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want you all to stay seated. And keep your heads down. And Bo's just going to either play or sing. I don't know if he'll sing or just play. We've got, we've got a couple of minutes. And he's just going to play. And I just want you asking the Lord. 
any of those things that I shared, particularly that idea of framework, I'd love for you just to ask the Lord for some direction. If you feel like that's a family question, you can put your head on your spouse's head and y'all can pray together. I'll be up here. If you want me to pray with you about anything, I'd be happy to, for sure. Um, but I also want to encourage y'all just to kind of stay quiet before the Lord in your seat. And Bo will dismiss us in about three minutes, four minutes.